Hello everyone and welcome back to Down the Line. This is episode number 137. I'm Brevin Honda joined alongside Kyle Betts. It is a Friday, January 26, 2024. How are you doing, Kyle? Doing great, Brevin. Uh, glad to be back here for another week of Down the Line and uh, great to be joined by you as always and uh, really excited to break down what's happened uh, this week in the NFL. I have to admit there were times this weekend where um, this past weekend, I should say, where, you know, uh, I wasn't uh, 100% fully engaged on watching football just because I was kind of just doing other things throughout the weekend. But um, all in all, um, kind of looking back on what happened, uh, it was a great weekend regardless. And we had a lot of uh, close, more close games, I would say, than we had in, the, in uh, Super Wildcard weekend. Um, and that, that was obviously the weekend prior. So, Glad to see the competition come out um, and some great results, I think, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a, a big week of sports that we're going to break down from this past week that we're going to preview for the weekend. Today is also the four-year anniversary since the passing of Kobe Bryant today, um, back on that final Sunday in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just I uh, uh, can't believe it's already been four years since uh that happened yeah um kind of woke up to that news earlier this morning and it puts everything in perspective i mean one of the most beloved uh sports figures ever and i think for good reason um just so tragic what happened to him and everyone else who, who was involved in that uh that crash and um i i think you know there's always a few celebrity deaths that kind of stick with us. Um, especially, you know, when, when you hear the news, it's, it's so shocking and so sad. You remember where you are. I mean, I was at the Daily Aztec, Revan, when yeah. that happened. And what was that? Was a, you said that was a Sunday, right? Yeah, was, that was a Sunday. It was a Sunday morning when that broke. I mean, why would I be at the, at the Daily Aztec on a Sunday morning? Yeah. On a Sunday? <laughs> Any other time. And, and that was literally the only time that happened. I just remember being surrounded by other people. You know, when we were there, we were recording a podcast, literally when it was happening. And I just looked at, I, I remember looking at my, our, our good friend of the show, Michael Klein, um, in shock. I looked at him. I was like, no way. I, I like, couldn't carry on with the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tragic and, and a day that you always remember. Um, Kobe and Gigi for sure. Um, the, their impact still being felt to this day, and and, and they will forever. Um, as well as all, you know, all the lives involved in that helicopter. Um, mm-hmm. because it was all special. Um, and it was just such a tra- tragic event that went down for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because I remember because this same weekend, it's also the Farmers Insurance Open in San Diego. So, um, Tiger was playing that weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had like, I think the ball went into the hole and then came out on on his approach shot. I can't remember which hole it was. And then obviously Tiger went in red because it was Sunday. And then you think about just how much of the connections that Alley players that on the PGA Tour had growing up watching Kobe Bryant play. Whether it was um, Max Homas talked about it. You think about um, Sahith Thagala, Colin Markawa, those LA guys. Um, Max Home brought it up last year after he won 
um, how much of an impact uh, Kelby Bryant had, um, you know, just growing up in L.A. And, um, yeah, you just think about how much, how fast uh, four years have gone since then. Definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to kick off our show here with the Fast Five. And most of this stuff all happened last weekend. But kick things off one week from today. News came out that Sports Illustrated is laying off all of its workers, saying that all of its jobs were being eliminated. Yeah, it was a sad day in in sports last Friday, you know, when that news officially came out. And it's just the end of everything. I mean, for all of us, I, I think we'll remember, you know, everything great about those magazines, you know, the photos were always stunning. Um, you know, everything written about the athletes was so engaging and they were collectibles. They, they still are. Yep. And they now, now even more so because, you know, the company is now dissolving, uh, at least in the regard of sports illustrated. And it's a sad day um, just because it is so iconic. Mm-hmm. And when you think about SI, you think about all the covers um, and you think about some of your favorite ones, um, through the years, I mean, too many I can even name right now, Brevin. I mean, um, mm-hmm. by, by far, one of my favorites is um, the Broncos, Wes Welker, Eric Decker, Demarius Thomas, and Peyton Manning. Um, that was when they had that historic season. Um, and one that really stood out to me when I was younger that I'll never forget was uh, when Hanley Ramirez was on Sports Illustrated, the cover of Sports Illustrated. I can't remember what year that was, but it's when he was on the Marlins and he was like the equivalent of Fernando Tatis. I mean, he was just absolutely electric. So fun to see him play. And I think having that magazine and that feature about him was just so cool to me. 2008, I think it was. Okay. So I was nine years old. Yeah. Uh huh. Sounds about right. (laughs) I know. The thing that stands out, obviously... Um, watching a uh, quarterback on Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. one of their first opening scenes, it's Kirk Cousins reading to his kids Sports Illustrated, the Big Book of Why. And so you think about that aspect and just, um, you know, learning the game. And uh, I think the thing, the excerpt that they read was about. The year Tom, why quarterbacks have all these rules against them that Sports Illustrated wrote about. And so, yeah, um, that kind of stands out. And the year Tom Brady didn't play, I think it was 2008, because of taking that uh, hit to the knee, I think it was. But yeah, it was tough to hear. And then you think about on top of that, also coming out within the last week with the Alley Times laying off a bunch of its workers, that includes a couple of sports writers as well. Yeah, I mean, writers covering several teams out of Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, in Orange County as well. And it's tough to see, um, you know, especially in the midst of all the success. I feel like, you know, L.A. teams are having and potentially could have, even more so when you think about the Dodgers now. Um, you know, it's it's just hard to imagine that's actually happening, Brevin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think about uh-huh, all those teams that the popularity being in Los Angeles, whether it's 
LeBron James approaching 40,000 career points, whether it's uh, Shohei Otani, whether it's, um, you know, even this celebration of Anze Kopitar earlier in the week with the LA Kings. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, and then you think about Mike Trout and um, obviously the Rams with their playoff run that they had this year. And on top of UCLA, USC moving to the Big Ten in the fall, it's um, – Sports is definitely not a dying breed, and we're going to get to Jim Harbaugh, obviously, with the Chargers, and, um, you know, it's just one star after another um, that a lot of teams are talking about. You know, you think about even LeBron James' son playing um, on USC's men's basketball team, and so it's just name a team in L.A., and there's a superstar you can go cover, and, you know, it just leads to um, the popularity that, Los Angeles has brought to this team to these teams and and it's not just current but it's also the history um you know like we talked about with Kobe Bryant yeah it's an absolute shame Mm -hmm. there's just no other way to put it Mm -hmm. and you you said it perfectly with all those examples I gave um all the names that you said as well I mean like you said all these players have made a difference in their own rights and I mean, these teams deserve coverage. They're an essential, you know, part of Los Angeles, you know, being one of the top markets in the country. It's just unbelievable to think that this is actually happening, but it's the unfortunate reality that we are living in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Point number two, we go, we're going to go up the coast. Now we're going to go up to the Bay area on Sunday. Stanford women's basketball head coach Tara Vanderveer became the winningest basketball coach in NCAA history with a 65-56 home win against Oregon State to reach 1,203 career victories, surpassing former Duke men's head coach Mike Krzyzewski. Yeah, this is fantastic and great to see Coach Vanderveer uh, come out on top. Uh, Another statement win here as uh, Pac-12 play continues. Um, and, you know, honestly, I, I had no idea she was that, clo- co- that close to Coach K's record, but surpassing it is uh, fantastic and um, looking forward to seeing how much uh, she can now rise that number to this point. Mm-hmm. Right now, the Stanford Cardinal, they're number six in the AP poll. Um, the uh, this week in number five, tied with Iowa um, in the coaches pool, who we're going to talk about next year, where also on Sunday, Caitlin Clark, who scored 45 points for um, for the Hawkeyes. Um, um, Iowa, they had lost 192 on the road at host Ohio State. There were like 18,000 people in that game. Led to a court charming and... As Caitlin Clark was running off the floor, there was a basically a a Buckeyes fan who was running out of the court, and then Clark and that Buckeyes fan just ran into each other, and it just led to this just unfortunate incident um, within this court storming event. So, Brevin, I, I I heard about this incident, but I actually didn't see it. Uh-huh. Uh, did it seem accidental to you? Yeah, I thought it was accidental. There were videos on Twitter where if you put it in slow-mo, it was like, 
uh, Caitlin Clark was pushing off, but it was just like, it was more of like incidental contact. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was incidental. It was just like, I mean, Caitlin Clark just trying to get off the floor and uh, let everyone celebrate, you know, with this win against the number two ranked team in the country, uh, second ranked team in the country. And, um, you know, so I thought it was just pretty, I didn't think it was unintentional. Right. That's fair. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's unfortunate there um, on Sunday um, at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. All right. Point number four, we go. We remain, well, not really. We remain, uh, technically, we remain on Sunday where on the PGA Tour, we had an amateur win a PGA Tour event for the first time in about 33 years. Uh, Nick Dunlap, who's an Alabama Crimson Tide sophomore, won the American Express on Sunday uh, up at PGA West in the Coachella Valley. One was the only amateur in the field, won that event, and uh, yeah, I made history with, um, had a, I think a six-footer for par, and uh, yeah, I was able to make that for the win. That's crazy, and I didn't even hear about this. I mean, what a ridiculous story. Um, yeah, here, here comes his, uh, NIL deals, <laughs> you know, left and right. In addition mm-hmm. to now becoming a pro as well. Um, fantastic for him. I mean, what a crazy story here. Brevin, who finished behind him in the leaderboard? Uh, so I think behind him was Christian Bezudenhout. And so because Nick Dunlap was an amateur, Christian Bezudenhout took the first place prize money. And then the second place uh, FedEx Cup money as well. Or the second place uh, FedEx Cup points because he's an amateur and was uh, like a sponsor exemption. So, Um, but um, decided to, so he had the opportunity to go pro and play this week at the Farmers, but decided to hold back, let everything all sink in. He was at... uh, Alabama's men's basketball game against Auburn. ESPN had him, found him on, found him in the stands and had a camera on him. And then, um, that next day decided to go pro. Um, and so he's going to play in the Pebble Beach Pro Am, one of the PGA Tour's eight signature events this year, um, next week. That's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah, I know. It was, I think when he made that six foot putt, his caddy's like, you've made it like a thousand of these type of putts. It's like, <laughs> just to give him that type of motivation, he said like, Nick, your mom could make this type of a putt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, so he's turning officially pro and, um, yeah, so he'll be, he'll have PG tour exemption for the next two years through 2026. And so, now to be, now it'll be instead of being like a uh, Ludwig Aberg, who is number one in the PG Tour University rankings, um for um uh, collegiate athletes, Nick Dunlop gets to, doesn't have to skip that part, doesn't have to go through um uh, Q school, doesn't have to go through Corn Ferry tours automatically on the PG Tour with that two year exemption with his uh win last week. Yeah, I mean he just set himself up for great success in the future. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think pretty sure he also gets to compete in the players, the masters, oh, and wow. the PG Championship in in the US Open. Because he was also the reigning US amateur champion. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he became the first US he became the first reigning US amateur to win on the PGA tour since Tiger Woods in 1996 so it was a lot of history uh last week with that victory wow sounds like it yeah Mm -hmm. all right uh yeah currently right now we got the farmers insurance open going on the third round here on a friday because of tv um with with cbs and conference championship this week so the only time this year we get a wednesday to saturday PGA Tour events. Right now, I think it's Stefan Yeager that is in uh, the lead. I think it's at 13 under par right now. Uh, yeah, 13 under par. Where's this taking place? Uh, Torrey Pines. Okay. San Diego. Okay, nice. And great weather for this weekend as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was with the rain that there was in place on Monday. Um, on Monday and into Tuesday, a lot of rain came in, so yeah. softer conditions. So that's why you're seeing a lot of higher scores. I mean, 13 under was last year's winning score by Max Homa. So, um, and we're only seven years, not even halfway through his third round. So we could see a good close to 19, 20 under on possibly on a really difficult south course at Torrey Pines. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. We go to number five here, and currently going on down under in Australia, you get the Australian Open in tennis. There were a couple of big upsets uh, among the notable players in the semifinals. Both uh, Novak Djokovic on the men's side lost in the semis, as well as Coco Goff, who just won uh, the U.S. Open last year. Uh, Both of them lost. So as a result of that, on the women's side, you get um, uh, Arania Sabalenka. She's the overall two seed, going to go up against Zhang Quinnen, who's the number 12 seed. Both of them, they are going to face off in the women's single final on Saturday. And then I think it was, was it Thursday when you had the men's single? Yeah, the men's single uh, in that semifinal. Um, the one, the overall number one seed, Novak Djokovic, lost to Yannick Sinner. Um, six, uh, lost six one six two, seven six six three. So, uh, four set match that Novak Djokovic lost, trying to win his eleventh Australian Open, is gonna ha- now gonna have to wait another year. Yeah, I definitely didn't expect that. Um, I think out of everything that's happened as of late, um. Like you said, he's been dominating this competition for a reason. Um, I mean, Yannick Sinner is great in his own right as well. I'm not surprised he took him down, um, per se. And that final matchup is going to be interesting as well. I, I think that there's a lot of intrigue in that too uh, with Medvedev. But yep. when, when you think about Djokovic, I mean, he, he just can't afford to be losing um, you know, a match like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Even last week facing, or in the quarters facing um, Taylor Fritz from San Diego, you kind of saw that 
um that back and forth between that um i can find that i think that was monday actually um earlier in the week yeah that first set went seven six and no one even got a point that first point literally took 15 minutes to decide because <laughs> both players were going back and forth. One player had an advantage and it went back to deuce, advantage, deuce. <laughs> it just went back and forth and it was like one yeah. player would get deuce, then they would also get advantage but then go back. And so that was a. Um, the Jokovic ultimately won that match in four sets and you just saw kind of like the opportunity. Um, Taylor Fritz even had to win that one. So. Um, the opportunity was there, but uh, Novak Djokovic took advantage in the quarters. All right. So with that, that's going to conclude the Fast Five. We're going to move on to some football. And before we get into the divisional round, as Kyle talked about earlier, we're going to talk about some coaching news because some uh, head coaches were named, some GMs were made. We kicked things off last week, Friday, where um, the Raiders officially named Antonio Pierce as its new head coach. And then four days later on Tuesday, they had named Tom Telesco as its GM, moving from the Chargers to the dark side. Yeah, um, I mean, this move doesn't surprise me, especially when we talk about Antonio Pierce. I think this was pretty much going to happen all along. You saw Mason Crosby and other players lobbying for AP to stay. And, I mean, yeah, he's a purebred Raider at heart, and you can see it. So they made the right decision in in keeping him there. Um, Telesco, though, I I think an interesting hire. Um, I I will say he does have a good draft history for the most part. Mm -hmm. We'll put together some pretty talented rosters. Um, He has signed some veterans to some questionable deals, but – I mean, for the most part, when you consider uh, building talent um, from the bottom, that's what the Raiders need to do. They haven't been able to draft well in years, and Telesco has a pretty good history of doing that at a high level um, in regards to other GMs in the NFL even. So I think this is huge for them. Yeah, I mean, the identities there is just getting players to buy into that yeah. identity. Um, uh Pretty much what Antonio Pierce Shields getting back to Raider football. Um, you know, it's going to be, a, you know, do they need another running back? If Samir Wright can't answer the door with Josh Jacobs being a free agent, you know, obviously adding to that defense. I mean, Antonio Pierce, obviously, also what's going to be figuring out is offensive coordinator. I think during the press conference, one of the reporters asked, what are you looking for in an offensive coordinator? <laughs> And Tony Pierce jumped, just jumped the gun and said, yeah, someone that can help us score 24 points. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be on that list. And obviously you get a, you're going to have a second year, Aiden O'Connell, um, possibly their quarterback. Devontae Adams is still there. Um, so yeah, plenty of opportunity there. Max Crosby, Hunter Renfro, if Hunter Renfro doesn't get traded. Um, so yeah, plenty of opportunity there for, the Raiders. All right, we go cross country for this next move. Where on Monday, Carolina named Dan Morgan as its new GM after previously after previously serving 
as the team's assistant general manager since 2021. So like the Raiders, they stay in-house, but with their GM position. Dan Morgan was also the team's 11th overall pick uh, for Carolina in 2001. Great history there between Dan Morgan and the Panthers, and it continues. And I think that's huge when a player can stay within the same organization. And not only that, but work his way up. Uh, is fantastic, and I think it makes sense why the Panthers are trying to promote internally here. Mm-hmm. And then uh, also Carolina then announced its head coacher, head coach for the season. It's going to be Dave Canales. So with that, he becomes the only, I think, Mexican head coach or uh, that type of a st- descent in the NFL that was announced on Thursday. Yeah, um this is, I, I think, a great um, hire here. He is uh, from Carson, California, uh, Azusa Pacific alum. I think maybe the, the first APU uh, alum that's become a, a, a head coach in the NFL, I think for sure. Um, so a, a cool story from him. But um, what he's done along the way has really helped improve himself. I mean, just reviving the play of Geno Smith as quarterbacks coach um, two seasons ago with the Seahawks. Um, We saw what he was able to do, um, or I should have said last year with with the Seahawks, and in this past season with the Buccaneers, also kind of reviving the play of Baker Mayfield. Though Baker showed some flashes when he was picked up by the Los Angeles Rams near the tail end of last year, um, he played with more consistency this season and that's why they the Buccaneers reached a divisional round is because they had good quarterback play to help lead them there. Mm-hmm. And so Dave Canales has done a heck of a job, and I think his leadership is now going to translate to um, having that even bigger role now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think about just like Antonio Pierce going to be working with a second-year quarterback in Bryce Young um, in Carolina on top of its other players as well. So. Um, future is looking pretty bright there in Carolina. All right, we go to, we're going to go back to the West Coast, where on Wednesday, the Chargers have named Jim Harbaugh as its new head coach, leaving Michigan after an 89-25 and record that included being part of that national championship Wolverines team uh, a few weeks ago, was the AP Coach of the Year. Uh, 2021 had won three straight Big Ten titles, and over those last three years, a 40 and three combined record. Yeah, no surprise here. This was uh, pretty heavily rumored throughout the past week or so, and finally came to fruition. Harbaugh, a former Charger himself, um, now going to uh, see if he can transform uh, Los Angeles the same way that he did up in San Francisco. Um, when he was the head coach of the Niners, leading them to a Super Bowl appearance. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. Um, a lot of work still yet to be done in L.A., I think, in, in terms of building the roster, filling out the rest of the, the front office and, and the coaching. But um, this is a huge get for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jim Harbaugh, I'm pretty sure the Chargers, they don't have a GM yet. So yeah. that's also on the works here. But Jim Harbaugh, as we get to this next team, declined a second interview with Atlanta, 
who we talked about last week, uh, was uh, also being part of the 14 different head coaching candidates, and also included Bill Belichick and Mike Vrabel. The Falcons ultimately choose Raheem Morris, who was with the Rams the past few years, um, as it's uh, with their defensive coordinator, goes to Atlanta to be their new head coach. This is a huge hire, a massive hire, I think, for the Falcons. I think this completely changes the game for them. The talent that they possess on offense is huge. So once they figure out their offensive coordinator situation, once Morris does that, I mean, they could potentially be lethal there, depending on the quarterback situation. Not only that, but look at what Raheem Morris did these past couple seasons in L.A. I mean, he should have been hired as a head coach last offseason if we're being and who who is a star on the Rams defense besides Aaron Donald? I uh, mean, Kobe Turner. Kobe, yes, Kobe Turner, rookie of the year, possibly, potentially, right? He, he's a nominee. Who else? Um. Well, I mean, before he was traded, you had like names like Jalen Ramsey. Yeah. Um, uh, Bobby Wagner was there. Uh, Von Miller, but. The point I'm trying to make is, I mean, we don't even know who's on that. We don't even know who's on that defense, and they still kept this team in ball games. And there is a reason why they made it to the playoffs. And yeah. mm-hmm. it wasn't just the quarterback play; it was because they were able to get many turnovers over the course of the season. And so that's mm-hmm. not that's not to discount any of the guys on on the defense either. Mm-hmm. But, the point the point is Morris has just done such a great job mm-hmm. over the last few seasons. That's why the Rams have stayed competitive. Mm-hmm. I think you had names like Byron Young. The most experienced outside of Aaron Donald on that defense, I think, was Akella Witherspoon uh, yeah. playing like safety or quarterback. Can't remember which one. Yeah, quarterback. Um, but yeah, I mean, you think about this Rams team this year was able to compete with the Ravens. Uh, lost thirty seven thirty one in overtime. Um, obviously that was part of that stretch where they lost set. They where they had won seven of eight going into the playoffs. Um, you know, and that was pretty much a young defense outside of Witherspoon and Donald, and they were all able to step up and really not feel like young players that they learned earlier in the year. Remember, this is a team that started three and six that we talked about. Um, and now, uh, they're looking back on the year. Um, with the trip to the postseason and a lot of the defense coming back, it's now going to be figuring out who's going to be that DC um, in place of Raheem Morris. For sure. Absolutely, yeah. So we'll see how the Rams kind of adjust in that regard. Definitely um, a tough situation trying to replace Raheem Morris, but the mm-hmm. Falcons have, I think, high expectations now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that means... Uh, NFC South is going to have two no, two new head coaches. AFC West is going to have two two new head coaches, and we're still waiting on uh Seattle and Washington to hear what they're going to do about their new head coaches. All right, we are going to move on now. We're going to talk some divisional round football. Last week, the on Saturday kicked off the Ravens taking down the four seeded Houston Texans. 34 to 10. And then later that night, you had San Francisco, the number one seed in the NFC, take down 
the uh, number seven seed Green Bay Packers 24-21 on a two-minute drive by Brock Purdy. Yeah, um, that was just a crazy drive there. And we'll touch on that in a minute. But, um, yeah, I, I think some great games here on Saturday in the divisional round. I mean, this this Baltimore team showing why they deserve to end up, you know, in the conference championship here. Just a complete beatdown of the Texans, who definitely held their own throughout the course of the season with any team. And then the Niners showing some resilience even – during some tough times at home, I think was important. That's what a championship team needs to have. Mm-hmm. All right. And then on Sunday, the both number three seeds won. Um, so you had the, in the NFC, the Lions were able to hold on at home against the four seeded Buccaneers. And then the three seeded Chiefs were able to win on the road in Buffalo 27-24. Yeah, um, I think, you know, these games were fantastic as well. When you think about the Lions, I think we'll start with them, the win that they had, um, just handling everything right. And I think it starts at quarterback with Jared Goff. Despite the mistakes that he made, I think he's just everything they needed just because he, he reads the game and manages it so well. And he's kind of similar to Brock Purdy in some ways. Um, not comparing the two necessarily, but um, they just both have that sort of um, knowledge of, you know, making the right decision, I think. That's how I can compare them. Um, and Baker made some mistakes himself this game. Um, they couldn't, the Buccaneers couldn't run the ball, and so that's why that result was the way it was. And in regards to the Chiefs game, I mean, just the Bills with the a completely missed opportunity here. Um, coming from a Broncos fan, frustrating to see the Chiefs move on to the next round. I thought the Bills had it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you saw Jameer Gibbs with the big 31-yard touchdown um, in that game as well um, to get that win. Amon Ross St. Brown, eight receptions uh, for 77 yards on a touchdown on 14 targets. Sam reported nine catches for 65 yards on 11 targets so you see the volume at the top um and being able to complete those 9 of 11 8 of 14 for both of them and then you think about the Chiefs they were just able to hold on we're going to talk about them more in our three up three down coming up next Josh Allen was probably probably perfect or if not definitely was not the reason this Bills team lost um Sunday night all right, so we get now we're going to do our three up, three down from the divisional round. Kyle, where do you want to start? Yeah, I'll start with Purdy's game-winning drive. I mean, he had uh, a couple really nice carries during that drive that put them in good position. I think just the whole way just showed some great poise. Um, he had a crazy throw as well over the middle going over the top, I think, over Keyshawn Nixon. Um, and he was able to complete a pass to, I think it was Jawan Jennings, just – uh, over uh, Nixon's outstretched arms, and it was just an unbelievable throw. Um, so just gutsy. And like I said, he, he just played that game, uh, ne- not necessarily his best, but I, I think he, he did on the last drive, and ultimately that's what they needed 
Um, despite your guy not having a great game, he he came through in the clutch, and uh, Brock Purdy sh- just keeps proving himself, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good selection there. I'm going to go with another quarterback to kick off my three up. I'm going to go Lamar Jackson here. Um, had four total touchdowns, completed 16 of 22 passes for 152 yards and two touchdowns. Also had 11 carries, led the team in rushing with 100 yards and two rushing scores as well. Um, those two touchdowns going to um, going to Isaiah Likely and Nelson Aguilar. Um, yeah, Lamar Jackson was just unbeatable. I mean, he pretty much is anyway when he is ever on the field because he can beat you both with his arms and his legs. And uh, I think it was the most uh, touchdowns that most total touchdowns that he's had um, in a postseason game as well. So props to what Lamar Jackson has done, um, especially what he did last week. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to move on with my next selection here for my three up. I'm going to go with Mike Evans. And I want to talk about the legacy that he's leaving. I mean, this is a guy who has just been through so much in his career, uh, the positives, uh, the negatives, and uh, he is now a uh, free agent now uh, that he is uh, 30 years old and his contract is now up uh, with the Bucks as things stand at least. Um, just a great performance in the, in the loss against the Detroit Lions. Um Eight catches, 147 yards. He had uh, that touchdown as well. Um, and he, he just continues to build his legacy. Uh, still so much potential. He's an incredible athlete. And no matter if he stays in Tampa Bay or goes elsewhere, um, you know, he, he's going to be, you know, heavily pursued, I think, by many other teams just because that he continues to prove himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the only player with more 1,000 yard seasons, I think it's Jerry Rice as mm. well. So, um, just speaks to the consistency that Mike Evans provides to, has provided to that Buccaneers offense, um, through the years. Yep. All right. Um, for me up next, I'm going to go Patrick Mahomes here and, the big thing going into that game Sunday night was, oh, this is Patrick Mahomes' first road game. Can he be able to get it done since all of his other previous um, games had been either at Arrowhead Stadium or on a neutral setting um, in a Super Bowl, for example. And so he was able to step up in um, through two touchdown passes, both to Travis Kelsey. And so that duo had, now has the most uh touchdowns uh passer and receiver touchdowns in playoff history with i think it's 16 now and super bowl champs you know they're looking to do the unthinkable and be able to to go back to back something this chiefs team hasn't been able to do yet you know we'll see if they're able to do that but um yeah he he played a great game and i think that's a great pick there Mm mm-hmm I'm going to move on to my last selection for my three up, and it's going to be the NFL divisional round viewership. 
more records set by the NFL here. I feel like we say that every uh, every so often, you know. Um, it, it just comes around, uh, and it's like no surprise to anyone when it does. But um, they continue to dominate um, TV and streaming, and it's just been taken to another level, especially with this divisional round. Totals coming in that shows that the uh, the divisional round as a total across all four games they had an average of uh, forty million viewers, so mm-hmm. incredible numbers there that the NFL is posting in regards to viewership. I mean, th- this year you're going to see like ninety five out of the top one hundred TV shows yeah. in the NFL games. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unbelievable. 126.7 million viewers total uh, across the weekend here for the NFL division round. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just speaks to, you know, the regular season and the scheduling that goes behind it with the TV. I mean, you think about, um, I mean, we had Chiefs and Lions on opening night and just how how that just kind of was a precursor to what we saw and just how much that game was completely viewed. And then you had like, um, Chiefs and Dolphins in um in Germany. You had um obviously the Eagles and the Chiefs before that. So a rematch of the Super Bowl. Um, that brought in a good amount of views. I mean, the Raiders and Chiefs on Christmas Day and all those views as well. And you're thinking, you know, not as probably a good Raiders team, but then to be able to pull off that upset Christmas Day, it just shows how many people are watching football on Christmas? It was just, a, uh, you know, how much are people watching the entire year? It's just, um, last week just encapsulated how, how much people are really watching football um, every single time it's on. All right. Um, my final point here, someone that stole the show off the field was probably Jason Kelsey. I mean, all season long, yes, the Philadelphia Eagles center. And you're thinking, why would I put a Philadelphia Eagles center if, if they're not in the playoffs? Well, obviously, Jason Kelsey, rooting for his brother Travis, and uh, was in Buffalo, getting to be part of Bill's Mafia and experience what that was all like, reached out to people like Ryan Fitzpatrick, and he's like, that a where to go? Was that a couple of tailgates as well? And, um, yeah, it was all just... Uh, Unorthodox experience, I would say, for Jason Kelsey being an actual NFL player, even though it would have been more fun if he was in the same division as the Bills. But, um, yeah, Jason Kelsey. <laughs> also, first time Jason <laughs> Jason and his wife Kylie are meeting Taylor Swift for the first time, being in that same box, and... Uh, when Travis scored, I think it was both of those two touchdowns, was shirtless and celebrating in that Buffalo cold, uh, Buffalo, uh, chilly weather. I could only imagine, uh, I mean, you didn't see Kylie's face on camera, but I could only imagine how much she disliked it and how much she enjoyed it all at the same time. All while meeting Taylor Swift for the first time, obviously... Uh, Jason's mother was in attendance um, for that game in that same box with Brittany Mahomes and that just uh, Patrick Mahomes' father. And yeah, Jason Kelsey really sure lit up the crowd, especially in that box and around that with um, 
embracing what it's like to be a fan in Buffalo. Yep. <laughs> That's Jason Kelsey, Jason Kelsey for you. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all, especially uh, in freezing temperatures. Yeah, I mean, those guys. Yeah, all season long, when you think about that particular box in that suite, it's been, all right, where's Taylor Swift? Where's Taylor Swift? Well, last week on Sunday, it was, all right, what's Jason Kelsey going to be doing now? It was like, Jason Kelsey stealing Taylor Swift's thunder last week. (laughs) Yeah. So, some NFL fans were probably happy about that a little bit. Yes. Uh-huh. Definitely a lot of Swifties, though. All right, so with that, that's going to include our three up. Kyle had Brock Purdy, his game-winning drive in the fourth quarter. Mike Evans in the NFL Divisional Round viewership. I have Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, and Jason Kelsey. All right, we go to our three down, and both of us have the same first pick here. Kyle, you want to go first? Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with Stephon Diggs here and also James Cook. Um, two guys who just had critical drops in uh, the Bills' loss against the Chiefs. And, I mean, they were just balls that should have been caught. And it's just unfortunate to see how it all transpired there at the end. But, um, yeah, Brevin, a a tough scene here from both of these guys who uh, um, just weren't able to come through. Yeah, I got Stephon Diggs as well. And... Pretty much, um, I think it was PFF, uh, Pro Football Focus. They put together uh, Stephon Diggs stats, weeks one through nine. Ready for this, Kyle? In nine weeks, 70 receptions, 834 yards, and seven touchdowns. So you think about that's, I think, 11 yards per reception, one touchdown for every 10 receptions as well. And then you think about from week 10 on, I think their bye was week 10. So pretty much week 11 on, that includes the divisional round. 47 receptions, 422 yards, and just one touchdown for Stephon Diggs. Man. Tale of two scenes. Obviously, you had the offensive coordinator changes um, midway through the year for the Bills. But, um, yeah, it just showed you how much, whether it was teams being able to defend Stephon Diggs that well or it's just... The offensive coordinator not being able to find Stephon Diggs. Um, and obviously, you think about some of those deep passes that were there. They just, um, him and Josh Allen really weren't able to connect. And so, um, definitely hurts, especially as a fantasy owner of Stephon Diggs this year. But, yeah, tough to see, especially, I think it was even on that final drive, too, um, where... Diggs and Allen try to connect on a long pass on a deep route, but they just couldn't come up with it. So, yeah, yeah, that was tough. But all right, Kyle, what do you got for your second pick? Yeah, uh, for my second pick, I have the Texans run game here. Um, just not the game that they needed. And sure, I mean the way that the way that the game went in in regards to you know uh, how, how the script kind of unfolded. Um, Sure, you know, it may have had more success probably towards the beginning of the game, and I think that's what they should have done. Um, Run the ball towards uh, the beginning of the game more and and do it effectively because when you think about the Texans and their 34-10 to loss against the Ravens, they just weren't able to run the ball effectively at the end of the day. 
Devin Singletary, nine carries for 22 yards. Um, and then you had Dare Ogunbowale, two carries for seven yards. I mean, Damian Pierce, nowhere to be seen. Um, I'm not sure if he was hurt or anything, but I, I didn't hear anything about that. And so for him not to even, you know, necessarily uh, get a touch in this game, pretty shocking here from the Texans. Sure, I mean, Singletary uh, could have done better himself, but I think establishing the run uh, should have happened earlier on in the game and involving Pierce should have too. Yeah, pretty much as, as this season's gone on, Damian Pierce has just gotten lesser and lesser number of carries, especially for the production that he had last year before he got hurt. And so, um, yeah, it'd be interesting going to this offseason, how the Texans and D'Amico Ryan's figure out this run game, if if Damian Pierce is part of it or not. Um, you know, especially for how high um, of a pick he was uh, two years ago in that draft. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next, I'm going to go with the Bucks here. In when they had scored that touchdown, it was their final touchdown. I was trying to figure out why they decided to go over two then and not just kick. And I say that because if you kick, you're still it's still one position game, still seven point game. If you go down, you just kick another field and kick another PAT, and you're tied going into overtime. It was just. I thought going for two there wasn't the right decision there because it at that point I mean you're still down one position any possession anyway so you might as well just kick so I thought that was it and then when they didn't get the um didn't complete that too I think it was on a, a little fade route to Evans but um obviously didn't come up with it and yeah that turned out to be the final points for. Uh, the Bucks in that game, but I thought they should have just kicked that uh, PAT instead of uh, go for two. Yeah, totally agree with that too. All right, uh, I'm going to move on now to uh, my last point for my three down, and that's going to be Baker Mayfield's, uh, I guess, supposed beef with CJ Gardner Johnson. We talked about May- Baker Mayfield, uh, how he performed with the Buccaneers, um, obviously them facing off against the Lions, uh, you know, a lot of talk going on throughout the week. Um, CJ Gardner-Johnson was asked about the Buccaneers' offense, and he mentioned Russell Gage. Well, Baker Mayfield uh, took notice of that uh, media availability um, that he saw from Gardner-Johnson, and he said, uh, with all due respect, Gardner-Johnson needs to watch some film. Uh, Russell Gage uh, is a great player, but he hasn't played it. Uh, a snap for us since uh, week six or something like that. Um, And so uh, I think that was just a really funny moment there over the course of the week, just for Baker Mayfield to throw an interception to none other than CJ Garner Johnson during the division round. (laughs) Yeah, that was uh, interesting there. Um, It's kind of like the way we saw, um, uh, Rams quarterback Matthew Stafford go out that hit, uh, go after the player that hit Tyler Higby, um, that eventually led to Terry Nutt. Uh, I think it was HCL and MCL for Higby, uh, two weeks ago. All right. Um, well, uh, next I'm going to go here to include three down. 
it's so tough to put him on here because I know one play doesn't define an entire game, but it's just un- unfortunate situation here for Tyler Bass to miss that field goal. Had to uh, delete all of his social medias because of it, because he missed that field goal. It um, had brought shades of Super Bowl twenty five when the Bills had an opportunity to win the Super Bowl on a game-winning kick, and um, that kick went wide right, just like Tyler Bass's field goal. And um, After the game, um, Josh Allen said it wasn't completely Tyler Bass's fault for missing that field goal. It was um, putting him in that getting to that situation and um yeah it was just a not the best of moments um where is that quote from Tyler Bass said it's completely on B um I feel terrible I love this team man this hurts it's this one hurts bad Josh Allen said I wish he wouldn't have been put in that situation you win as a team you lose as a team one play doesn't define a game, doesn't define a season. Allen said, losing sucks, losing to them, losing to anybody. And so, yeah, it's just difficult for um, just the position that Tyler Bass put in, um, both as that kick went in and after. Yeah, definitely that was a tough moment to see there. Um, especially with what followed afterwards as well. Um, everything he was receiving on social media, but um, glad to see him doing well despite all that and uh, hoping for the best for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so then we now got the conference championships this weekend. Zach Ertz earlier in the week signed with the Detroit Lions following the injury to backup tight end Brock Wright. Um, Kyle Bozier, that's about Zach Ertz um, signing with Detroit. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've been wondering all year, where, where is Zach Ertz going to go? Is he yeah. ever going to sign anywhere? Like, is it going to happen? I mean, this is such a genius idea from Ertz to do this, and it works out perfectly, uh, surprisingly, for both parties here. Because uh, Brock Wright is, is a great player. He's a great blocker. Uh, he can catch passes. We know that. But uh, Zach Ertz can do it all well, too. Now that he's a veteran and he's getting up there in age a little bit more, this is his chance to, you know, go out on top with the ring. There's one of four teams left, and he's choosing a team that needs him. I mean, he set up for success here, I think. Mm-hmm. And, too, you know, he provides that leadership for a rookie tight end in Sam Laporte at the same time. Yeah. Um. Also, some injury news here. Uh, left guard Jonah Jackson is going to be out for the NFC Championship. He could return for the Super Bowl in a couple weeks if the Lions advance. And then on the AFC side, the Ravens had announced earlier today that tight end Mark Andrews has been designated to return from injured reserve due to the ankle injury suffered during the regular season. He's going to be active on Sunday against the Chiefs. Yeah, this is great news. I love hearing this, and very happy for Mark Andrews to be active in this game. Um, it, it's going to be a, a dogfight, and he's just going to provide a, an extra boost to this Ravens offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that, that's going to lead into our first uh, uh, that first game, which is Baltimore hosting Kansas City. Uh, that game is 12 p.m. on CBS. Kyle, who do you got? Uh, moving on to the Super Bowl and representing the AFC. 
Yeah, I'm going to go with, unfortunately, I don't want this to happen, but I, I think it just will. The Chiefs, I think the Chiefs are going to win this game. Um, I think their experience is going to show, and Andy Reid is just going to prevail ultimately in this game. Um, I think it could be high scoring. I think it could be very close. And it could also go either way, but giving giving the Chiefs on the road. Mm-hmm. The only other time the Chiefs have played the Ravens in the playoffs, the Chiefs had lost that game, I think it was 2010. And so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see who, if the Chiefs can even up this playoff series or the Ravens are going to be 2-0 and move on to the Super Bowl. I think the key here in this game for the Chiefs, there's going to be two keys. It's going to be how well the Chiefs thing can can contain Lamar Jackson as well as can can this Chiefs team be able to run the ball with Isaiah Pacheco? Mm-hmm. And if they're able to accomplish both of those things, the Chiefs are going to be able to win this game and move on and try and go out and get that final step, reach that final step of trying to win two straight Super Bowls. And so do I think that can happen? I think it does happen. So I think I'll take the Chiefs on the road here um, and be – kind of be this World Warriors team that they're not used to being in a path to the Super Bowl. Right. Yep. All right. Uh NFC we go. Three seeded Lions, another three to one matchup here. Going to the Bay Area to take on San Francisco. This game immediately follows. KC and Baltimore at three thirty being televised on Fox. Kyle, how do you see this game playing out and who do you got? Yeah, I'm going to take the Niners in this game. Um, I, I think this game could potentially be very close to, but I think the talent that the Niners possess is just incredible. Um, I think if Purdy plays one of his uh, usual games, um, they'll be just fine. He just has to live with the turnovers um, because I think everything else will work out for this Niners team. Um, they are that good and they are that motivated. Uh, I'm not saying the Lions aren't, because they have great leadership in Dan Campbell. Um, but the talent on this team is just so hard to pick against here. So I'll take the Chiefs and the Niners in the Super Bowl once again. Mm-hmm. Most of the betting lines have the Ravens at four-point uh, favorites. There's a couple, FanDuel, BetMGM, and uh, Caesars. They've got the Ravens at three-and-a-half-point favorites. Uh, the Niners, they're all seven or seven-and-a-half-point favorites throughout um, the books. But... I feel like the Niners are going to win this game. Mm-hmm. I think the Niners will win this game. And as much as the key has been Brock Purdy, I think the ultimate key is Christian McCaffrey. Um, you know, and if the Lions are able to contain Christian McCaffrey, I think that's the difference maker, you know, whether whether or not Debo Samuel's playing. Because that was, because um, Debo Samuel didn't play the final three quarters or from when he got injured to the the end of that game. So um, if Christian McCaffrey is able to do his thing and be able to run the ball and catch the ball, then um, the Niners will win. But if the Lions are able to contain him, you know, with the way the Lions have this upstart offense, you know, the Lions are right in the mix to win this game as well. Mm-hmm. And with the way that Amon Ross St. Brown's catching the football, with uh-huh, Sam Laporta, you know, we talked about – their passing numbers that they lost week against the Buccaneers, if they can somehow do that, 
on against this Niners team, add in the running back duo that we've talked about all year with this Lions team, with David Montgomery and the Rick and Jameer Gibbs, you know, this is an unstoppable offense. Um, and it's pretty much been there all season long um, outside of a couple of games. So I think ultimately I'm going to lean towards the Niners, but I would not be surprised if the Lions are able to pull out a win here. Mm. All right. So with that, we are going to take a quick break as we reach the one hour mark here on down the line. Stay tuned because when we come back, we're going to talk some basketball. The NBA All-Star starters were unveiled. We're also going to go over the 41-man player pool that was announced for Team USA men's basketball in preparation for the 2024 Summer Olympics later this year. We're also going to break down the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, the player election results that took place on Tuesday, and some news here throughout MLB. So stay tuned for the second half of Down the Line. And welcome back to Down the Line. This is episode number 137, recording this on Friday, January 26th, just after 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the West Coast. It is a Friday. It's a great day. Uh, my name is Kyle Betts, joined always by Revan Honda as we just broke down our Fast Five, the latest in the NFL, including coaching news, the divisional round our three up three down segment as well as the conference championship now we're going to move on to the nba and all-star starters were just unveiled yesterday thursday that was the 25th of january here um an exciting time as we now learn who the starters are from the western conference as well as the eastern conference um brevin uh some surprises here, perhaps, uh, within the top five. Uh, obviously, a majority of the votes uh, coming from the fans. Half of the votes uh, count towards these all-star starters. Um, the other 25% belongs to media and an additional 25% to players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think really the only biggest um, surprise is Shea Gilgis-Alexander being that second guard from the Western Conference over Stephen Curry. I think it's going to be the first time since 2014 that Stephen Curry has not started in an all-star game. Um, I think that's the biggest one. And then uh, there's a case for... Um, and then you also had maybe Jalen Brunson among the Eastern Conference front court, who did not get the nod over Damian Lillard because of the way the tiebreakers are set in place. So, yeah, the starters from the Western Conference are Luka Doncic, Shea Gilgis-Alexander in the, the um, for your guards. And then at forward, you got LeBron James. He is the captain of the Western Conference team. You also got Kevin Durant from fo- at forward. And at center, you got Nikola Jokic. Out of the East, uh, you mentioned Damian Lillard. Uh, Brevin, he is one of the two guards representing the East. 
Um, in addition uh, to him, you got Tyrese Halliburton um, from the Indiana Pacers. Uh, your three forwards are led by Giannis Antetokounmpo. He is your captain. Uh, he is joined by Jason Tatum as well as Joel Embiid. Yeah, too, with LeBron James, this is his 20th NBA All-Star nod. That's an NBA record right there. Um, I think it was surpassing Kareem um, for that elusive 20th All-Star nod. Yep, just continuing to uh, add on to his legacy here, Brevin. Mm -hmm. Uh, LeBron James was number one in the fan vote, number two in the player vote, and number also number two among the media rank. Uh, Nikola Jokic was one among the player in the media rank and two in the fan vote. So they both had the same weighted score, but LeBron James gets the nod to be the captain because he had the most uh, votes in the fan vote. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between Shea Gildick's Alexander and Stephen Curry... Uh, SGA was number one in both the player and the media, and number three in the fan vote. Uh, Stephen Curry was number two in the fan vote, but three in the player vote, and four in the media vote. So the weighted score gives that nod to SGA. Uh, both Giannis and Tyrese Hallum, Halliburton were number one in all three. So then it came down to, um, in the front court, it came down to the next two spots. Jason Tatum and Joel Embiid were both two and three uh, between the player and the media, so they both get those final two spots with Jalen Brown just behind. And then among the that second guard between Damian Lillard and uh, Jalen Brunson, Damian Lillard was three in the fan vote, four among the player vote, and fifth among the media vote. Mm-hmm. And Jalen Brunson was third in the player vote, fifth, among the fan vote and second in the media votes. And when you put those two weighted scores together, they equal out. And because Damian Lillard had the not, had the recorded more fan votes than Jalen Brunson, Lillard gets that nod to start in his first year being in the Eastern Conference. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there you have it. Uh, the NBA All-Star Game, we are definitely looking forward to it. It is going to be February 18th. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are um, obviously uh, very excited about that one. Uh, there is going to be a three-point bot battle, allegedly. Uh, Steph Curry versus Sabrina Ionescu uh, on All-Star Weekend. So we'll see if that ultimately comes to fruition. Well, that'd be uh, so much fun to watch. Yeah. It's going to be a lot better than that one year when it was J. Bun Green going up against Kevin Hart. Sure. <laughs> just a, a separate 1v1 in it on top of the three-point contest <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah i was like yeah you heard it pre-game because steph curry was mic'd up and then sabrina inescu she responded uh on twitter and then uh tnt found that tweet and so uh yeah and then What's funny is because the connection there was uh, Stephen Curry's, pretty much his guard mate, Brandon Pazensky, uh he has the same agent as Sabrina Ionescu. So, <laughs> so oh, wow. the that's the connection there. Um, so yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah, that should be a lot of fun there, um, especially for their performance that 
from what we saw from Sabrinescu during last year's WNBA All-Star Game, where she had put, like, she made, like, 23s in a row and had, like, she only missed, like, one. And it was completely insane. Yeah, she's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that, too. Yeah, we're going to hear about the NBA All-Star res- Reserves next week. Um, we should be hearing, I think, pretty sure that we'll hear Stephen Curry's name there. The reserves are voted upon by the coaches. So that's where you get their aspect um, among the voting. Mm-hmm. All right. So there you have your NBA All-Star starters. Um, sticking with the topic of basketball here, we're going to move on to uh, some country basketball. Uh, and now we're going to uh, talk the USA. So USA men's basketball has now unveiled its 41-man player pool competing for 12 Olympic spots. And Brevin, 41 names are a lot um, to select from here. And it's going to be very difficult. But yeah, I'm going to read through mm-hmm. some. But I'm going to read through some on this list that kind of stand out to me. Um, So among this 41-man player pool in which 12 spots have to be selective, you had the likes of Stephen Curry, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, James Harden, Drew Holiday, Kyrie Irving, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Bam Adebayo, Trey Young, Paolo Bancaro, Jimmy Butler, Anthony Davis, Mikhail Bridges, Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid, Paul George, Aaron Gordon, Brandon Ingram, LeBron James, Jaron Jackson Jr., Kawhi Leonard, Bobby Portis, Jason Tatum. I mean, I missed a few names on this list that also stand out, Brevin, but I, I don't even know where to start in selecting 12 of these guys. I think where you could start from. I think there's a couple of given names here. I would assume yeah. that, I mean, because Steve Kerr's coaching, I would assume that Stephen Curry would. Steph and then Curry, you think about LeBron. LeBron. Uh, Those are the first two that are easier to figure out. Right. So you, that's a good point. So you have that, and you're, there's probably going to be, you know, a mix of young and young and old stars. I think on the. Mm-hmm. On- I mean, Anthony Edwards, I think we'll see on this on this roster. Um, obviously, I, I think Joel Embiid. Yep, the winning MVP. Should he take, should he play for Team USA? Yeah, because he he has dual citizenship. But I, I think he's he's registered with Team USA, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. I would assume that Kevin Durant probably right. Kevin Durant. Yeah, you'd like to think. Um, what about Donovan Mitchell? I could see Donovan Mitchell for sure, yeah. Um. What if, so, what about Drew Holiday? Like, he's, he's not, he, he's not the score they always need. I mean, obviously no. he can provide that, but, I mean, he's, I feel like he's been on every roster. Yeah, I feel like Drew Holiday, I, I would think both Jimmy Butler and Jason Tatum would get the nod over, bo- uh, over Drew Holiday before. yeah. Um, okay, so that's eight. Okay, what about Anthony Davis? Yeah, I would assume AD. Yeah. Kawhi? Yeah, that's ten. Okay. Um, you've, Jimmy, okay. Um, 
So I think your options here, Brevin. Got two spots. You have you. I think you have a mix of Dame, Dame or Kyrie, maybe. Yeah. Um. D does this team? Do you think this team needs more big man help? Um. Like you could you could go. You could go Bam. Yeah, you could go Bam. He's he's been on previous rosters as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Bam, or let's find someone else. Maybe, maybe Triple J, Jared Jackson. Mm -hmm. I think too. Even when you think about the guard play, I think Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah, him too. He's a younger version of Chris Paul in terms of passing. Yeah, I think Halliburton needs to be in this team. Yeah. I mean, when you're seeing Terry Halliburton put up, like, 13 assists, and it's not just one night of the year, but it's multiple nights he's leading the league in assists. Right. You know, and yet we haven't even talked about players who were on that uh, Team USA four years ago, you know, like Apollo Brancaro. Yeah, um, yeah, and he, he's been doing well for Team USA when he's been. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, so, Trey Young as well. We haven't talked about him. Um, I mean, right now, I mean, but but that's going to be the key. I think it's even like, even when you think about 2008 and how difficult it was picking those 12 guys yeah, and who was left off because there were a lot of big names that weren't on that team. I mean, we talked about, we talked about 14 players. But yeah, we haven't even talked about like a Devin Booker, for example. That's crazy. And you can even include James Harden even in that mix as well. James Harden, yep, absolutely. Because I mean, the twelve that we've got: Stephen Curry, LeBron James. We got Anthony Edwards, Joel Embiid, Kevin Durant, Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard. I mean, depending on how you even have the starting five. Kawhi's not even starting. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because if you got... You got a bead. Yeah, because if you got LeBron at, what would you say, the four, if that? Maybe the three? Uh, yeah. Do you, do you start AD with, with MB or no? Possibly, yeah. But then, but then here's the other thing. Do you start Durant or do you start Anthony Davis? That's a good point. I think you might start Durant and keep yeah about eighty mm -hmm. because yeah. if you if you just keep KD with Embiid, I think that mixes well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a tough decision. Our, Luckily, our, we're not the ones making this decision. Right. I mean, we know <laughs> the, we know your starting point guard is going to be Steph Curry at least, right? Yeah, it's, uh -huh. <laughs> it should be, um, unless someone else is like completely steps up ahead of him, whether it's like even like a De'Aaron Fox, for example, could even step up or Anthony Edwards or yeah. Paulo Brancaro. Dude, I yeah, it's gonna be a tough selection for Coach Kerr. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coach Kerr and that entire staff. Um I mean even you think about Kevin Durant went to was a two time NBA finals MVP with the Warriors. As well, so I don't know how much of that's going to come into play. Um, even the defensive aspect that Aaron Gordon provides as well, um, uh, could come into play here. Um, 
It'd be interesting to know with a player like Scotty Barnes, um, you know, coming out of the draft just last year and being a top five pick. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an interesting name to think about. Um, okay. It depends how you view Chris Paul with the leadership aspect and the experience that he provides. Obviously, was part of that 2008 um, team that had names like Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and uh, Dwight Howard. Um, you know, so that'd be interesting to watch. Um, and you can even put kind of on that same Scotty Barnes conversation, you can even put Chet Holmgren in this conversation in these first and second year guys um, having this opportunity for the first time. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about Paul George as much. As yeah. Well. That's. It's crazy, dude. So I mean, much. this is a roster that you could say could be 20 deep, but yet you've only got 12 spots, so. Yeah. I mean, I mean good luck to Steve Kerr and that crew for picking 12 guys who are going to make that roster and compete for, try and compete for gold medal for Team USA. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because all 41 of these players want to be on that team, but only 12 of them are going to be able to do that. I mean, when you think about that, that's, that's what a... Right. That's what a 29% chance of making the roster, and even basically one out of four, but even then, not all of it's certain. Mm-hmm. Holy. All right, let's move on now to uh, Major League Baseball. We had our uh, Baseball Writers Association Hall of Fame election announcement on Tuesday. Our uh, ballots have uh, finally been completed and filled out. And for the class of uh, 2023, three uh, players have been elected. Sorry, 2024. Or uh, 2024, rather. Yep. Good point there. <laughs> I also forget it's a, it's a new year as well. Yeah. Uh, but three guys elected, uh, fantastic players in their careers. Adrian Beltre in his first year on the ballot, 95.1% of the vote. You also had Todd Helton, his sixth year on the ballot. He had uh, 79.7% of uh, the votes. And then also Joe Maurer, a first ballot Hall of Famer, he accumulated... 76.1% of the votes. Mm-hmm. Joe Maurer reached election by just four votes. Whereas on the flip side, you had someone like Billy Biden, ninth year on the ballot, missed election by five votes. So, yeah, so we're going to see Billy Wagner next year be, uh, um, try and get in on his final year of eligibility you had Gary Sheffield he was looking to become the eighth player elected on his final year of eligibility but came short totaling 64 percent of the ballot Andrew Jones 61 percent in his seventh year uh Carlos Beltran his second year 57 percent and then it just drops from there so you had seven players um get more than half of the voting uh for the Hall of Fame this year yeah, I think it's great to see, honestly. And at, at the end of the day, um, these guys are all extremely deserving of this. And to see their success, you know, 
be sustained over the course of such long careers. I think it's fantastic. And um, like you said before, um, great to see uh, them be celebrated. Uh, Billy Wagner, uh, we'll see uh, how he does next year. Obviously, his last year of eligibility, uh, Gary Sheffield, I thought, uh, had a good shot initially. But uh, as more votes came in, we saw how his total kept going down. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the induction ceremony is in July, so we'll look forward to that as well. Um, let's move on now to some transactions, uh, the latest trades, and also rumors going around uh, Major League Baseball right now. We had some news coming last Friday, um, so one week ago. And uh, let's start with this. Matt Carpenter going back home to the St. Louis Cardinals, signing a one-year deal. Revan, I didn't even know he signed this deal until I looked at this rundown. Um, what are your thoughts on what he provides for this Cardinals team? Yeah, this is leadership. I think it's him and Lance Lynn. They are the only active players from that 2011 championship team 13 years later. So I'm um, going to definitely provide some veteran experience to some of these younger players when you don't have that trio that you had a couple of years ago and Albert Pujols, Yadier Molina, and Adam Wainwright this coming year. So um, you're still going to try and keep that cardinal identity, but in a different aspect because you don't have that main true that you had a couple years ago. Definitely. So uh, a nice signing there for the Cardinals uh, and for Carpenter. Uh, We also had some news coming out of the Houston Astros camp. They signed Josh Hader. Officially do a five-year, $95 million deal. That became official by the Astros on Monday. Yeah, this deal um, it's was probably the top closer on the market. No, not probably. He was the top closer on the market. And, you know, you, when you see five for 95, that's $19 million a year. And, um, you know, you were probably thinking that he wanted, because of his caliber play, you knew that. Uh, probably wanted to have somewhere in the ballpark of like an Edwin Diaz who got 102 a couple of years ago. Um, and when you see 95 million come off for him, it's and $19 million, you know, that that was something the Padres were not going to, we're not going to give him that much because of how much they were trying to save heading into 2024. And so, um, yeah, we kind of talked about it last week, you know, Josh Hader was talking about the Astros. This comes after, Kendall Graveman's going to be out for the year. So now you got that lefty righty closer duo in Houston with him and Ryan Presley. So, um, yeah, it just establishes that bullpen in the options and how you attack hitters, um, for Joel Espada, um, at the end of games. Definitely a scary side, you know, if you're a team like the Angels and you're going to have to face Josh Hader pretty often over the course of the season. Well, the Angels uh, saw that move, and and they decided to uh, make one of their own later on Friday. They signed right-handed pitcher Robert Stevenson, three years, $33 million. Um, Bradman, I thought this was uh, dishing out quite a bit of money to uh, a guy who, um, you know, will provide some stability to the bullpen, but um, we'll see ultimately uh, how he fits in. Yeah, it was between um, pitched uh, this past uh, this past season with Pittsburgh and Toronto, despite going 
0-3 with an area above 5 in 18 appearances. With um, He did um, go to Pittsburgh, where he went 3-1, and an area under 2.5 um, in 42 games um, in 38 innings, 10 earned runs, uh, 5 homers, uh, struck out 60 hitters, um, and facing 140 hitters, so... Um, you know, that's a pretty good mark right there. Um, so definitely a, a good pickup, especially not necessarily in a closer type of role, but definitely as possibly a setup man, um, role for Robert Stevenson, you know, seven or eight. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think a good pickup. I mean, obviously, uh, the investments there, but, um, they're going to need that to compete. And that's something that they haven't had. Uh, the Angels is a, a stable bullpen. So uh, not too much news over the course of the weekend, but Monday on the 22nd, we had the Cardinals make another move, agreeing on a two-year deal with Tommy Edmond to avoid ar- arbitration. So uh, a nice deal there between both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just see um, them agreeing to that deal. And um, I'm seeing if Tommy Edmond, what year that is. Mm-hmm. Um, now in where he's at, um, what year of arbitration that is i can't remember if that was his second year or what but yeah 16 million um uh for that deal total um check on spot track where that is but um it might have been his maybe his first year no that was his second year of arbitration so that's going to cover both years of his final two years of arbitration before becoming a free agent in 2026 so Cardinals are able to lock him up and not have to worry about arbitration next year. Another move uh, coming out of a, a different National League team here. We had uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates agreeing on a one-year, $10.5 million deal with left-handed reliever Aroldis Chapman. Revin, this is a move that uh, I never saw coming. <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect this one. Obviously, when you think about the playoff caliber teams that he signed before season began. I mean, you think about the Yankees, you think about Cleveland when they were making postseasons year after year and um, you know, like twenty sixteen was with the Cubs as well, um, as they were making their World Series push, you know, was with the Rangers last year. Um you know, it's kinda like the where he was at with Kansas City uh beginning of the year. And so um Again, now goes to Pittsburgh. You know he's got. I think he's the he's got the second most saves among active closers, on um, Major League Baseball behind, or maybe he's third actually behind Kenley Jansen and, um, Craig Kimbrell. But it's, um, yeah. I mean, it just adds to that depth there. You know, you think about with David Bednar there from the from the right side, and now you get Aroldis Chapman from the left side. You know, kind of like the way we see it in Houston. And mm-hmm. having that dual mix. So that way then when one guy can't pitch on, you know, a third consecutive day, they can go to that other guy in the ninth inning. So um, definitely a good move here um, for Arola Chapman of the Pirates. Absolutely. And uh, staying in the National League here, we had uh, a different left-handed pitcher, James Paxton. Uh, he and the Dodgers were in talks on a deal, and that was – uh, officially reported as a one-year, $11 million contract the following 
day. So that deal officially now in play for both parties. James Paxton going to fit in as a Dodgers uh, pitcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just adding to um, the depth behind their starting pitching, especially for how injury riddled um, this rotation is, you know, and will be in 2024, obviously. Like we've talked about throughout this uh, offseason, you know, we think about Walker Bueller coming back from Tommy John surgery, you know, you won't have, you don't have, as of right now, no Clayton Kershaw, no Julio Arias, you know, Dustin May was still coming back from injury last season, so you don't know how much um, of his work that he has to do to come back, you know, if he's going to be on an inning limit to begin the season, you know, all of those things on top of the younger pieces that they have um, among that starting rotation. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to Tuesday, the 23rd. We had a uh, interesting deal here from the Washington Nationals. They signed designated hitter Joey Gallo to a one-year $5 million deal. So adding some power to that lineup, Revan, and Joey Gallo gets another shot. Yeah, definitely providing also some leadership to that young um, Nationals team as well. And um, yeah, you mentioned the power, you know, especially Washington, it's a hitter friendly closer to a hitter friendly ballpark. I mean, mm-hmm. um, throughout the years and when you see numbers get piled up there in Washington, uh, probably too. I mean, even when you think about it for being on the older side, $5 million probably is the most money that he was going to be given. So that's, um, an amount that he took, um, yeah. could play the outfield as well, depending on it. So, um, yeah, it depends. Also, remember, you, uh, Washington does have Heimer Candelario in that mix as well in the outfield on top of Lane Thomas um, in right field. So, yeah, we'll see how much outfield time Joey Gallo plays in addition to being the DH. Absolutely. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers, meanwhile, signed first baseman Reese Hoskins to a two-year $34 million deal. He has an opt-out after the season, so... That gives him uh, a nice uh, chance to uh, get even uh, an even better deal if he does really well this season. Um, he's coming off an ACL surgery, so uh, we'll see how he performs here. But um, I think this is a very well-earned contract. I think this is, might be a little bit too much for Reese Hoskins coming off of that ACL. I mean, yeah, to pay $17 million for a guy who did not play last year because he got hurt in spring training. Uh-huh. You're banking on him to have, I mean, you think about other first basemen in the league and, uh, um, you know, you think about, um, uh, let me pull up first baseman and just, I mean, uh, the AAV, when you think about $17 million, that's in the range of like, Jose Abreu, Josh Bell, mm-hmm. Anthony Rizzo, um, a little bit above that, Pete Alonzo, you know, especially coming off a year where he didn't play. I don't know if he's going to be able to get up to that point. I mean, yeah, that'd be just the key to watch. I mean, um, below him at 17 million, you get Josh Bell at 16 and a half, Max Muncy's at 12, Jake Cronenworth 11, Christian Walker 10.9. So, yeah, I don't really know if it's worth $17 million a year based on how much you pay him. Um, 
especially coming off an of injury, it's not like he had a uh he played in played 150 games, you know, hit two six two two eighty with um twenty five homers. You know, this is a player that didn't even play last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely fair point there. Um we'll see how he fits into that Brewers lineup. Um and if he returns to his previous form, but um the Angels also made a deal on Tuesday. They signed left-handed pitcher reliever Matt Moore to a one-year, $9 million deal. So the experiment continues here with Matt Moore and the Angels. Yeah, just adding more depth to that bullpen. You know, especially after last year, we talked about how much that bullpen struggled. And yeah. pretty much kind of how it has struggled since the loss of Rizal Iglesias in that bullpen um, since he was traded to Atlanta. And uh, we saw, I think it was last month, where... The Angels sign, I think, was a trio of relievers, though, like back to back to back. And so it's just that competition um, that's going to be taking place this spring um, in that bullpen is, you know, we just talked about Robert Stevenson. Now you get from the left side and Matt Moore, you know, adding that left-handed um, arm in that pen. Um, I think without Aaron Loop, I think. Um Yes. Yeah, without Aaron Loop. So oh, finally, finally free. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that'd be uh, you know, that opened up a spot without having Aaron Loop in that bullpen. You have Aaron Loop currently a free agent official. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Angels finally escaped. <laughs> um so let's move on now. And uh, we didn't have any news on Wednesday, but Thursday the 24th, so yesterday, um, or actually the 25th, that would be, I believe, um, we had the Arizona Diamondbacks sign Jock Peterson. That was to a one-year deal with a mutual option for 2025. So um, the Diamondbacks are putting together uh, quietly a, a, a decent offseason. Yeah, you know, they're, this is a team that, you know, because of how young they were, you know, with the likes of Corbin Carroll and Alec Thomas, you know, this is a team that wants to be be in the postseason year in and year out. And, you know, this this D-backs team really didn't have a consistent designated hitter. And now they do that, you know, and oh, well, for sure what Jack Peters is now going to play with his third National League West team after being with the Dodgers and the Giants. Absolutely. And we had one more deal that happened yesterday. That was the Texas Rangers signing right-handed pitcher David Robertson to a one-year deal. And that was reported to be in the $11, $12 million range, pending a physical for ESPN's Jeff Passan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Texas, you know, they don't have a role as Chapman this year because he now going to Pittsburgh, as you mentioned, you see – some of these closers start to go off the, the market as because of Josh Hader and the domino effect. So David yeah. Robertson um, goes to Texas. We saw him with um, New York the past couple of seasons, was in Miami. And, yeah, going to provide um, definitely um, going to be in competition for that closers position. And um, also today the Rangers there, looks like they're going to bring back Travis Jankowski. Um to one-year deal as well. Oh, wow. 
they're still there for them. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's going to do it for uh, Major League Baseball, uh, the latest in regards to transactions, news, rumors. We're going to move on to trivia now, and I am on the block here once again. Brevin, take it away. All right. We're going to do some Hall of Fame here. I know the last couple of weeks we've done some Immaculate Grid with Kyle, but we're going to change that a little bit. So as you know, we had the Hall of Fame uh, announcement this past week, Kyle, and yep. we saw Adrian Beltre and Joe Maher get in on the first ballot. So, Kyle, we're going to kind of go on that track here. Um, looking for 17 first ballot Hall of Famers oh, no. dating back to 2007. 2007? Uh-huh. Oh, boy. There's a good amount, I would say. Obviously, 17 players over the last 17 years. Basically, one per... On average, it's one per year. There wasn't necessarily... Not gonna one, go well. one first ballot Hall of Famer every single ballot. This is not going to go well. I think you can do this, Kyle. Hopefully. Uh-huh. There are a total of 60 players in Major League history that have been first ballot Hall of Famers with the additions of Beltre and Maurer joining that list. Okay. Since 2007? Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, Mariano Rivera. Yeah, there you go. Mariano Rivera, 2019, uh, was one of two first ballot Hall of Famers that year, so you get a clue there. Was David Ortiz a first ballot Hall of Famer? Yes, he was. The most recent first ballot Hall of Famer before Beltre and Maurer earlier this week in 2022. Okay. Um, Mariano Rivera. Mm hmm. Uh, remember Mariano Rivera, the only um, unanimous Hall of Famer in the history, right. as right. well too. Yeah, that's why it was the easiest one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Uh huh. Um, All-time leader in saves with six hundred and fifty-two, thirteen-time All-Star, five World Series with the Yankees. Okay. Um, man, this is tough. I'm trying to think of players like from the nineties and stuff, you know. Yep. That is a good idea there, Kyle. Randy Johnson? Yeah, there you go. The big unit was one of three uh first ballot Hall of Famers part of that two thousand fifteen class. There were three first ballot Hall of Famers that year. The big unit. Okay. Um was Vladdy Guerrero a first ballot? Vlad Guerrero was not a first ballot Hall of Famer. Good guess, though. I was going to say, was he? I was like, I feel like I should know that, but. Um, okay. What do I have? Four so far? Uh, one, two, three. Three? Uh, was Cal Ripken Jr. first ballot? Cal Ripken Jr., yeah, he was a first ballot Hall of Famer. Part of that class of 2007. Um, I was like, he's going to be so close. Yep. Mm hmm. Was one of two first ballot Hall of Famers that year. Let's go. Okay. Um, oh, man. I wonder who that other one would be. Mm. Man. Um, Vlad Guerrero Jr., or Vlad Guerrero, 
Uh, he was elected in 2018. That was his second year on the ballot. Second year, okay. Mm-hmm. He had just missed election in 2017, his first year. Um, garnered 71% of the ballot. So, just missed being a first ballot Hall of Famer by 5%. 4%. Derek Jeter. Yep, there you go. Derek Jeter, 2020. Um... It was one vote shy of being unanimous and part of that class in 2020. So there you go. There's your fifth name off the board. Another 12 more to go. Pedro Martinez? Yeah, there you go. Now we're starting to get on a roll here. He's the second of three among those. First ballot Hall of Famer 2015. Part of that class is Randy Johnson. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, are there any? Are, there are any Padres on here, right? Uh, one, two. I'll give you three, actually. Hmm. And two of these players played together. They were teammates. I don't know if that gave it a clue or not. Adrian Gonzalez? Nope. Adrian Gonzalez was, uh, this was his first year on the ballot. Only got three votes. Oh, that's, oh yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I think some of those good teams in the 90s there, Kyle. I feel like the 90s is... Especially the earlier '90s and even the mid '90s is like I I don't know that much about that era, you know. Yeah. Um, can you give me some teams? Yeah, there's one team they got four members from the Atlanta Braves. Chipper Jones. First, yeah, there you go. Chipper Jones, 2018. Um, one of the most decorated players in Braves history. Um, maybe one of the best switch hitters of all time. Was one of two that year that were first ballot Hall of Famers, part of that class, 2018. Uh, Chipper Jones, eight-time All-Star, 95 World Series champion. Uh, there's another hint there. Uh, 2008 NL batting champ, 99 uh, NL MVP. Greg Maddox? Yeah, there you go. Greg Maddox, part of one of three first ballot Hall of Famers in 2014. So when you think about that, six first ballot Hall of Famers in a two-year span in 2014 and 15. Kyle, you've got three of them so far. Okay. I'm doing better. Yeah. Um, Braves players. Yeah. Six. Oh, also Greg Maddox is one of those pottery players that I mentioned too. Right, right. I was, mm-hmm. yeah. I was thinking, was is it him? I'm not sure, but yeah. I shouldn't second guess myself. Uh, so you think about those three, those six first ballot Hall of Famers between 2014 and 15. You so far got Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson, and Greg Maddox. <laughs> okay. What was Biggio first ballot? Greg Biggio was not. Let's say. 
because of how crowded that ballot was when you got six first ballot Hall of Famers into your stretch. Uh-huh. It makes it pretty difficult to <laughs> have that first ballot Hall of Famer. Craig Biggio, um, he was 20... Is he 16? I think it was 2016. Oh, that was Bagwell, 16. Uh-huh. Um, what year was... Craig Biggio was part of the class of 2015. Had uh, that was his third year on the ballot. Okay. Was uh, Pudge Rodriguez? Yeah, there you go. Ivan Rodriguez, the only member of the class of 2017 Let's go. to uh, receive. I can't Let's go. I can't. Uh-huh. Gardnered seventy six percent of the ballot, um, two thousand seventeen. Just like David Ortiz, he was around that mark as well. Okay. Um, let's uh, see. What's another clue I can give Kyle? Was Matt um, Holiday? Matt Holiday? No. I was gonna say Matt Holiday this year got four votes. One vote ahead of Adrian Gonzalez. <laughs> Should just had Kyle guess who's so on funny. the 2024 Hall of Fame ballot. Now with guesses of Adrian so Gonzalez and Matt Holiday, who still haven't just... touched home plate in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just spewing at names because I have no idea. Uh, one of these players was uh, that we mentioned was a a name that. Daniel Greer and I could not get on the Immaculate Grid a couple of weeks ago for one of these spots, one of the most popular names among the Immaculate Grid for that particular grid. If you go back and listen to that episode uh, for those two teams. I know what you're um, talking about. I don't remember it. <laughs> I don't actually, like, I remember what <laughs> happened, but I don't remember who it was. Let's see. Some of these... Two of these players that you have not named have hit over 600 career home runs. Oh, boy. And a third who has hit over 500 home runs. Um, at the time, another clue was that this player had thrown the first no- postseason no-hitter since um, Don Larson in the 1956 World Series with his perfect game. Roy Halliday. Yeah, there you go. 2019, joining Mario and Rivera as uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. There you go. That year in 2019, the year Mario and Rivera was unanimous. Roy Halliday received 85.4% of the ballot, the same as Edgar Martinez. Who Edgar Martinez was in his 10th and final year on the ballot. Mm. Okay. Got that you got that one. Ten mm. names down, another seven to go, Kyle. Oh boy. I'm probably not gonna be able to get all of them. Two thousand seven. <laughs> uh a couple of Padres still on this list. Uh maybe it was more notable for being on the Oakland A's than the Padres. Ricky Henderson? Yeah, there you go. 2009, another 3,000 hitter, 3,000 hits in his career. Played with the Padres in 2001. 
That's funny. Uh, Ricky Henderson, I think most stolen bases all time. Mm -hmm. All right, six more names. Uh, let's see. There's still one name out there from the played in the American League West. Um, let's see. How else? Six hundred plus home runs between the most two recent names that you haven't mentioned. Um, 2018, 2016. Both of them reached 600, at least 600 career home runs. Oh, boy. Um, I, I cannot tell you. You're missing one name from 2007. You're missing another name from 2000. You're missing two names from the... Tony Gwynn? Yeah, there you go. Tony Gwynn, 2007. I figured That's that was good, the... Yeah. That was the threshold, because I don't know if you'd be able to get from 2006 uh, on deep. Um, yeah, that's tough, too. Because before that class with Tony Gwynn and Cal Ripken, it was Wade Boggs in 2005. I don't know if you would have gotten Wade Boggs. Oh. Or even Dennis Eckersley. I probably wouldn't have guessed them, but I probably wouldn't like, okay, that makes sense. Uh-huh. All right, so you got the first... Uh, Tony Gwynn and Khalid Gripkin, one of the biggest crowds for induction weekend during that ceremony in 2007. People lined up all the way past the trees of that year. Mm. One of the biggest crowds ever. And it was just two players for that Hall of Fame weekend. One of the biggest Hall of Fames. One of the historic ones. Awesome. Alright, so you need... So you got Greg Maddock, part of that class of 2014. You still need another two, including one of uh, Greg Maddox's teammates among that year. Oh, uh, you need another in 2015. It was also one of Greg Maddox's teammates. Um, and then your other two in 2016 and 2018 both have hit more than 600 home runs in their career. You're gonna have to give me more clues. <laughs> um, I know if I give away a team. All right. Um, this player in 2018. As well as this player in 2014 played in has played in the American League Central. As Kyle continues to ponder, so far Kyle's got Tony Gwynn and Cal Ripken Jr. and two cause part of the class of 2007, Ricky Henderson in 2009. Both Tony Gwynn and Ricky Henderson were teammates uh, with the Padres in 2001. Uh, Greg Maddox 2014. Mm -hmm. Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson among the class of 2015. Kyle was able to get Pudge Rodriguez in 20, 2017, um, who also was in Texas to greet Adrian Beltre uh, after he got the call earlier this week. Um, Kyle was able to get five um, of the previous uh, Hall of Famers. Um, Chipper Jones, 2018. Roy Halladay and Mario Rivera in 2019. Jeter, 2020. David Ortiz, 2022. I got nothing. All right. Kyle, is, are we going to call it here? I think I have to. All right. Uh, Kyle finishing 12 out of 17. Not bad. Uh -huh. I would. All right. The ones that you missed here. The class of 2014, Kyle. 2014. 
as a member of the Chicago White Sox. Played 16 years with the Chicago White Sox and was a 300 was a 301 lifetime hitter, but most notably known for hitting 521 home runs. Frank Thomas. Oh. Tom. Okay. Um. Oh, all right. Two-time MVP as well in 1993 and 94. Uh, Frank Thomas. All right. This next player. Uh, part of the also part of the class of 2014. Um, Greg Maddox that year, 97%. Who you also got this player, 91.9% of the ballot. Another first year, a first ballot Hall of Famer with more than 300 wins. Tom or uh, Greg Maddox's teammate, Tom Glavin. Oh, okay. So those were the two from 2014. Uh, joining Greg Maddox. Uh, 2015, uh, part of that trio of that Braves pitching rotation, joining Glavin and Maddox, John Smoltz. John Smoltz in 2015 garnered 82.9% of the ballot that year. Um, 213 wins in ERA 3.33, also included 154 saves. I was thinking to myself, I was like, is it someone on TV? And I just couldn't think of them. Uh, that could have been another. I should have mentioned that one. All right. Um, 2016. Uh, next we go with nearly getting perfection in 2016 with 630 career home runs. Was a former number one overall pick, just like Joe Maurer, Ken Griffey Jr. It's embarrassing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I definitely shouldn't be on him. Yeah. And your final one. <laughs> a, uh, Gardner, 89%, 89.8% of the ballot in 2018. <laughs> was a name, uh, was one of the names that Daniel and I could not come up with, uh, for a specific bots among the Immaculate Grid. So go back and check out that episode. Was a name that also I was dumped on for that particular box. Hit. How many home runs did he have? 612 home runs. I think that box specifically was Cleveland and Baltimore. And that name, with 89% of the ballot that year, has the most walk-off home runs in baseball history. I think he's got 12 or 13. That's Jim Tomey. Oh, first ballot, Jim Yeah. Tomey. I mean, that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. So those were the five names. Yeah, he was great. Mm-hmm. So with that, 17 players... I, would, I wouldn't have guessed them, though. Mm-hmm. 17 players since... Or I should say 19 players since 2007 that have been first ballot Hall of Famers. I'll run down that whole list one more time. So you got Class of 2007, Tony Gwynn and Cal Ripken Jr. Ricky Henderson in 2009. Then we get a five-year gap with Frank Thomas, Tom Glavin, and Greg Maddox in 2014. Continuing that trend with another three in 2015 and John Smoltz, Pedro Martinez, and Randy Johnson. Ken Griffey Jr. in 2016. Hudge Rodriguez, 2017. Jim Tomey, 2018. Also in 2018, Chipper Jones, who you got. Uh, 2019 was both Roy Halladay and Marion Rivera. Derek Jeter, 2020, and David Ortiz, 2022, before this year. 
with Adrian Beltre and Joe Maurer. That's an impressive list. Mm-hmm. Kyle getting 12 out of 17. Could have been worse. Uh, I definitely should have got Griffey Jr., but the other ones, I mean, yeah, those were those were a little bit more tough. Mm-hmm. 70%, Kyle. Not bad. Mm-hmm. One more, and you would get that 75%. C's get degrees. Mm-hmm. Had you got 13, that would have put you above 75%. Uh, all right so that is trivia today looking back at some of the most recent first ballot hall of famers going back all the way to 2007 in it in total there are 60 first ballot hall of famers that i think begin um obviously that first class that includes hannes wagner babe ruth uh christy madison walter johnson and ty cobb um that first class in 1936. And then you don't have any first ballot Hall of Famers until 1962 when you had Jackie Robinson, Bob Feller, um, that season. But, um, so that is, uh, trivia today. And that's gonna conclude our show here on it down the line this week. We got plenty into plenty of sports that we dove into. Remember this weekend, we're gonna Australian Open. Uh, singles and doubles finals for both men's and women's. Um, next week, we're also going to find out the um, who the reserves are for the NBA All-Star Game uh, coming up in a couple of weeks in uh, Indianapolis. We're also um, just a few weeks away from spring training starting next week. Uh, Friday is going to be February 1st. Yep, that's uh, right. Is that, is that Friday? No, that's actually Thursday. So... Better. Yeah, we're just a couple of weeks away from spring training starting with the Dodgers and the Padres taking things off because they're playing in Korea uh, within the next month, or within the next two months, I should say, on March 20th. So uh, we should be seeing a lot of names come off the free agent board, like a Blake Snell, for example, uh, and so many more, Jerks and Profar, possibly. Mm. Um, Yeah, NBA, as we approach the... Trade deadline as well. We've had plenty of trades go down. Terry Rozier getting traded as well into that mix. Um, Milwaukee, they got a new coach in, in Doc Rivers this week. Um, yep. So plenty of news that's going on in the world of sports. On top of college basketball, we're seven weeks away from Selection Sunday. Um, so yeah, so we'll dive into a lot of that and more next week here. So we thank you for listening to this week's episode for Kyle Betts. I'm Brian Honda. Thank you for joining us and we hope you listen to another episode of Down the Line.